We kick things off with our wrap of the top business stories and joining me this evening to take a look at uh, these big stories in the marketplace. I'm joined by Roy Mutoni. He's a portfolio manager and analyst at APSA Asset Management. Roy, as always, a pleasure, brother, to catch up with you. Good evening and welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Roy, let's maybe start off uh, with that. Uh, yeah, uh, those remarks coming through. Uh, from the, uh, I guess, entity that registers companies in South Africa, the uh, Companies and Intellectual Property Commission, the CIPC, suggesting a record number of company registrations in 2020 um, is a distress signal that they've certainly seen, I guess, uh, when we saw the other capital market crisis uh, around 2007-8. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting thing. I think intuitively you would think more companies would be formed during times of prosperity, but it's quite clear what happens is during times of difficulty, people get yeah. retrenched, laid off, or retire. Um, and, and to cover their shortfall in income, what they do is a lot of what a lot of them do, especially the ones who are in formal employment, go out and start companies that allow them to get back into business. Um, they saw the, 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 the they saw this in 2008-2009 and even last year. So what was interesting is that companies formed last year during the crisis was uh. significantly, it was like 30% more than the year before when things were as normal as they could be. So yes, that just seems to be what people do to, to survive. Uh. And I mean, I guess there, there would be different drivers of this. Uh, but um, if there's anything, I mean, it, it does suggest a surge in the number of people who want to access formal sector opportunities. Uh, so often the discussion is, you know, the informal sector plays this mop-up role, where, you know, when people lose their jobs or when, you know, they're working shorter hours, they go into sort of informal, unregulated forms of uh, uh, income generation. But it does seem here that, um, I guess, you know, even the prospects in the formal space um, have some attraction for many of those who are working shorter hours or have been retrenched. No, without a doubt, when you have more time on your hands, if, you're an, if you have an entrepreneurial bent, or if, um, as with most people, you, you, you can't cut your expenses to the level of income you have, this is what you do. I, I think it's what, you, what is referred to now as the gig economy in more developed countries, where, and, and that's where things like Uber or Airbnb come in, where, where when you have a bit of excess capacity, you try and sweat it a little bit and earn a little bit more money. Mm, mm. I, I found also, I guess, the, the assessment of what's been happening in the informal sector quite interesting. Um, I mean, some, some data coming through here uh, from uh, the uh, Small Enterprise uh, Foundation. And, uh, you know, they, 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 I guess, tell us a, a very interesting picture of, you know, the sense that everybody wants to formalize their operation. And I guess... Um, or, or that people need to formalize parts of the operation in order to get support uh, or any relief measures from, from the government. Um, and yet, you know, uh, many, many of these entities in the informal space really indicating that uh, they have very little interest in formalizing their businesses in return for some cash relief or assistance. So if you think about it, um, if, if you lose your job, your first priority is to replace the income. And you generally will do this in an informal sense. Formalizing your enterprise means you have, A, confidence in it, B, you're probably looking for funding from the formal sector, um, and, 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 and C, you, 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 you have no problem paying tax. You, you can imagine the minute you enter the formal sector, you mm. start a company, whatever you make, 
um, what, 30% goes to the government. But imagine you've just lost your job. You're still trying out to see what has happened, what, what you can do, whether you can actually send out those invoices, whether you can make the money. But now if you formalize, maybe you might need VAT. You might be regi- need to be registered for VAT or speak to the municipality. Licenses are hard to come by. Um, so, so I think that's, that's what the main driver is there. I don't think it's that people don't want to be formal. It's just that the absolute need at the beginning is not there. What you want to do is to get out, earn some money, pay your bills, and then you can think about tomorrow. You fight for today so that you can survive to fight another day tomorrow. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess that's what many entities, uh, or I guess many South Africans uh, who, as uh, Roy is saying, have some entrepreneurial bent, uh, yeah, are looking to do and uh, seeing a rapid increase uh, in the number of people registering their businesses. But that's always, I guess, just the registration part. doesn't really tell us much about the income generation capability no. of some of these ideas, Roy. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And remember, just because this number rises during times of distress doesn't change the other side of the equation. Most, most small businesses fail within one to five years of starting mm. up. Um, I, I guess... That, that's just the harsh reality. A lot of these things people will try, they will fail, they will lose money. Um, and it goes back to the discussion that we had the other day about people mm-hmm. cashing in their pension, trying yeah. out stuff like this, and then the money goes and then you've got nothing. So it's, it's, it's a difficult position, but you really cannot fault people for trying. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly one of those, uh, I guess, uh, challenges. But uh, I mean, just this comparison between what had happened around 2007-8 just shows us that um, if we anticipate that many of these crises are going to come uh, with a much higher sort of periodic frequency, then it might be helpful if, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, many of these entities start to think about what it is ideally that should happen uh, when we see uh, this type of crisis and even the barriers to, to going out and registering and even making some money here. But uh, the, yeah, those registrations increasing 385,000 in 2019, uh, rising to just over half a million companies registered in 2020. Let's shift our attention away from that, Roy, uh, and take a look at, um, yeah, interesting piece coming out in the New York Times today, uh, saying, uh, yeah, it's quite clear that COVID-19, least of all in the United States economy, has come with um, a productivity dividend, if I can say that, um, for all manner of reasons. But I guess the big question being asked is whether or not this is sustainable and is it going to last? Um, But let's maybe start off here, Roy. What accounts for this productivity boom? So so if if we think about it, um, when, when the crisis happened, you had a sudden drop in demand and a complete stop in supply because people couldn't move around, couldn't spend, couldn't manufacture. To reopen the economies, what you had was the government spending aggressively, quantitative easing, fiscal policy, low interest rates Mm. and everything. So the economy in aggregate grew a lot faster than employment because people were laid off or put on short time and everything. And that's your first equation. So productivity rises because the economy is recovered a lot faster than jobs have. That's the first Mm. thing. So that's just a technical thing. Then you have the second aspect to this, which is basically once economies started running, people have found ways of doing more with less. So whether it's work from home, whether it is short staffing, whether it's not bringing back everybody who was laid off or not giving people enough hours, 
that's a, an increase in productivity. And you've also seen the work-from-home mm. phenomenon growing. Now, how sustainable is that? The, the reality is these were, the, 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 there's a component to this which is cyclical. So you can see this is people making a plan at the beginning. But what happens is the people who are left working eventually will demand higher wages, which feeds into inflation, which means you might actually find it easier to hire other people. But then there's also a structural side of it. We've seen it here in South Africa, the move online, the fact that people now prefer to order meals for delivery, the fact that people want to order to buy their clothes and shoes online. Maybe they do the initial shopping online and then collect at the shops, which means you need fewer people um, actually guiding you or helping you at the shop. So, so there's those two components, which are very viable, I mean, which are very real, and we'll see panning out over the next one or two years. It is quite interesting, I mean, when you think about it uh, from that perspective, uh, because I guess there's also this dynamic of what are called efficiency wages. I mean, uh, there's always the distributional questions of, you know, who benefits from these productivity improvements uh, in instances where they lead, I guess, to improvements in profitability, because I guess the cost drivers uh, don't grow as fast as what it is that is being produced. Um, what, What have you made, I guess, of how this looks like in the U.S., but also here at home? Um, yeah, so, so that, that, that's actually a very good question because what happens is you see the productivity up front and you see the prof- profitability up front. What follows is now what determines um, who, who actually wins. So the, the shareholders and the corporates do see the profitability, but mm. the pressure on wages is inevitable. Um, as, as, people see, as, as people see all of this value coming through, as they get um, worked harder and harder to produce more and more, the pressure to increase wages or to hire people, which, is, which effectively from an economic perspective is the same thing. Higher paid mm. people or more people earning, the total wage bill rises. That's, that's, that's how that productivity cake gets shared eventually. Higher wages, higher costs. If, um, if, if it pushes too hard, that goes into inflation. Um, and inflation is just higher price. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a sense, I mean, there's, there's also the other question, which is this, this idea of the reorganization of work, Roy. Uh, I mean, yeah. we've seen this in, in many of the sort of uh, uh, retail outlets, especially in the food space, where mm-hmm. just the reorganization of how your food gets to you uh, yeah. can unlock uh, potential, I guess, value for owners of the businesses, but um, I guess might pile on more work for some of the fewer sort of workers that are on, on the payroll? No, without a doubt. I mean, but there, there are some positives that come out of that. If you, if you think about it, what, what some companies do is they try and upskill the people who are left. Mm. So you, you maybe don't need so many waiters, but maybe you need more people in the kitchen. Um, so you train them up and they go work into the kitchen. Or some of those waiters or lower productivity people become the ones who handle the delivery or man the phones or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. That, that, that's part of the evolution when you face a crisis and, you, and, and solutions come, especially a crisis like sure. this which we've seen, which has taken a bit of time to, to resolve and has made us all need to adapt mm-hmm. to. Yeah, Roy, I want us to pause here for a second and uh, take a quick spot break. When we come back, I want us to conclude on this particular one and uh, we'll also take a look at uh, yeah, some of the uh, interesting stories coming out of Nedbank, uh, which uh, has uh, certainly seen, I guess, uh, or I should say put out uh, the uh, first half numbers uh, earlier on today.
22 minutes it is after 7 p.m. You tuned in to uh, Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, yeah, we're taking a look at uh, some of the big stories in the world of money and power. Roy Motoni is my guest. He's a portfolio manager and analyst at APSA Asset Management. And uh, Roy, just before we went to the break, I guess we were talking about the story of uh, productivity gains brought about by the economic shock of COVID-19. Um, and maybe just, uh, you know, a last one on this particular score. Uh, I guess it does have lessons if one thinks about it, um, you know, for any country, least of all South Africa with its, you know, world-beating levels of unemployment, on any job strategy. I mean, uh, what it does show is that, you know, there's prospects that arise out of this crisis that allow for productivity and even profit gains that might not necessarily come with expanding production. No, absolutely, absolutely. The, the the learnings from a crisis such as this for a country for like, like ours um, are, are legion. I mean, there's there's many things that come out of it. Like we said earlier on, um, people have discovered the online world. All of the retailers before were only selling less than one percent through online channels. Right. I think through this crisis, has gone up between three and five percent. Still very early, still very low, but it's all growing. Um, I think you remember during lockdown when nobody wanted to travel anywhere, suddenly it became very convenient to use all of these online platforms. So, so yes, there are lessons to be learned. Um, but I think the biggest one is that um, upskilling people um, to fit into the new economy and into the new way of doing things is beneficial for everyone, um, yeah. both the corporates, the country, and the people themselves who are upskilled. Mm-hmm. Let's shift our attention now uh, uh, to, uh, I guess, what we see from uh, one of our banks here in South Africa, Nedbank, uh, coming out uh, with uh, their, uh, I guess, yeah, trading statement on the back of uh, the first six months of uh, operations ending 30 June. Uh, what do you make of this set of numbers? I mean, uh, seeing that uh, top line revenue number up 2%, nowhere near uh, pre-COVID. Uh, but also, I mean, I'm quite interested in your thoughts on that cost to income ratio up from 56.4% to, to uh, I guess, just shy of 59%. So, so the interesting bits of that release are a bit lower in that income statement and balance sheet. So they, they had guided, so I think the market was expecting this, but this, these numbers came better than the market had expected pre the guidance mm-hmm. and were uh, midpoint to, to the upper point of the guidance. There are some things which stand out very much. First of all, in aggregate, lending didn't grow. But if you, if you break it down, what, what you saw was a fall in corporate lending, so fewer corporate loans or smaller size corporate loans, but lending grew in microloans, um, which tend to be higher, higher risk, so higher interest, so also higher spread, so a bank makes more money on it, but they're riskier. The corporates didn't borrow as much because you saw corporates not investing. And also a lot of corporates had drawn down on their facilities last year and kept them in cash because they didn't know what was happening um, and, and preferred to stay that way. So, so that, that was a very interesting thing. If I also turn to the discussion we had before the break, you saw a 7% increase in staff cost, but 1,100 fewer staff and higher computer processing costs. Just showing you that within this time, even this bank was able to um, try and rejig its operations to look in a different mm. way. It, it negatively impacted its cost-to-income ratio, yes, but this is retooling themselves for the future. In fact, if I remember correctly, NetBank were the first one of the big banks to 
to, to institute that work from home as a permanent feature of, mm. of, 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 of the operations. Um, at, at the bottom of, of the results, uh, they're only expecting the ROE to get to the 2019 levels by 2023, and they declared a dividend. So you can see they're retooling. Um, they think they will recover, mm. but I can imagine by the time they do recover, it will be a very different-looking business. Yeah. I'm always interested, I mean, when I, when I look at, you know, the, the income side of a bank, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the distinction between, I guess, you know, uh, um, net interest income and vis-a-vis -vis sort of non-interest forms of income that come in. And uh, it's quite clear right. here, just with the lending story that you were painting earlier, Roy, that a big part of this showing was also on the back of a much stronger growth in sort of non-lending forms of income. I mean, I think insurance income was, was, one, was one that was mentioned um, and some of the cost savings that you've mentioned as well uh, from a personnel side. No, absolutely. So, so if, if I break it down, um, and there's a number which I like to look at, which is called pre-provisioning operating profit, which is a combination of both interest and non-interest fees and all of that, but mm. outside of lending. That pre-provisioning operating profit went backwards by 5%, just showing you, confirming that they're operating in a very difficult environment. Um, uh, so if, if, if it wasn't for the higher profitability of, um, of the loan book through microloans mm. and the fees and, 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 um, yeah, and the fees that they earned from that, this may not have been such a good result. Yeah, so, so yeah. it just shows you they are operating in a difficult environment, but they were able to adapt to that environment and show relatively solid numbers. The difficulty is now going to see to be what do we expect for the coming year? because then the base becomes a lot more demanding and you can't just roll back on the provisions you made last year. And maybe a last one before I let you go, Roy, what do you make of uh, yeah, this promise of a restructure from six to two divisions of uh, yeah, aerospace and defense company, Danel? To be absolutely honest, it's shuffling deck chairs. The, <laughs> the, the problem is not six divisions or two divisions. Mm -hmm. This is a business that has not paid salaries for, what, six, seven months. It's not actually clear what their core business is, who is running it, what the board is responsible for. It requires a route to branch restructuring or rethink of its entire purpose. Um, it, it's not clear whether the... the, the um, Denel is a valuable business. It has IP that is coveted globally, and it actually has a purpose. But when you go from somebody who has such um, valuable IP and such relevant products within the world of armaments and everything to somebody who cannot pay um, salaries and who needs a shareholder bailout so that you can fund a five-year restructuring program, it just means you don't know what you're doing. Let's, let's be honest. Let's, let, let's call a spade a spade. Um, I, I think this is one where um, they really need to rethink the purpose of the organization, start from there, get people who actually know the world of armaments and the world uh, of the IP that they have, and then they run it as a commercial entity. Roy, you know, and I guess in many ways a signal of uh, some of the disarray that we have heard of in our security operations in this country. Because, I mean, if you, you're talking here about an entity that has or had some of the most sophisticated uh, you know, aerospace and defense technology, I mean, unmanned aerial vehicles, all manner of other things, uh, that now, I guess, is, you know, sharing around the begging bowl looking for bailouts. No, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's sad. 
it's sad, but it's a reflection of everything that you've seen that is that goes under that SOE banner. They lose direction, and and then we get we get told that it's restructuring and retrenchment and bailouts. No, the fact is they've lost direction. They don't have management teams that uh-huh. actually know what's supposed to be done. Um, and, and the purpose is just not there. And that's where they need to start from. What is the uh-huh. purpose? Does this thing really need to be, had to be owned by, by the government? If so, if it needs to be owned by the government, who needs to run it? Because ownership and operation are two not very separate yeah. things. Yeah. Roy Motoni? Always a pleasure catching up with you, my brother, and uh, thank you very much, as always, for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, and have a good evening. Cheers. Uh, Roy Motoni there, Portfolio Manager and Analyst at uh, APSA Asset Management. Uh, we take a brief break now. When we come back, President Sir Ramaphosa was at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry earlier on today, and uh, Melebu Hang Peku shares with us some of her thoughts on uh, that particular show. before 8 p.m. you tuned in to Metro FM talk here on the mighty Metro. Now, President Sir, President Sir Ramaphosa was uh, yeah at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry earlier on today. And uh, yeah, we're going to be getting some reflections.